If you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. Last Sunday we began a series on miracles. And as I said last Sunday, uh, the issue used to be the impossibility of miracles. That it's just not possible for there to be miracles. And this has been, they've been rejected based on scientific judgment and also a rejection of the supernatural. You know, because miracles can't be duplicated, they can't be measured, therefore they've been rejected. And sadly, too often the church has fought the battle on those terms that we're trying to prove to people that in fact miracles could happen. Nowadays, I think people are much more open to miracles as they are open to the supernatural and they really don't have the supreme confidence in science that previous generations did. And so they they would accept miracles and they would see miracles as a gift, as a wonderful gift, to which Christians would answer almost with pride, yes, it is a gift and we know who the giver is. Um, Again, I think this misses the point. I believe the real issue is what does a miracle mean or what do miracles mean? This is what I want to explore in this series. The question is, how do we answer this question? By looking at the miracles in the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. I mentioned last Sunday that in the Gospel of John, we find John using the word signs, semion, from which we get semiotics today, uh, instead of writing miracles. He sometimes will say miraculous signs, but usually he says signs. That is to say, they signify something. They are pointing to something. Now, the other Gospels do this, but to a lesser degree. So, in Matthew 12, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to him. Teachers, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it wasn't so much that they wanted to see something spectacular, I think, though I think that's there, a miraculous. They wanted something that signified something that would, in fact, be a form of proof to them. In general terms, the miracles in the ministry of Jesus signified or pointed to three realities. First of all, Jesus is God. The miracles he performed are, in fact, uh, proof, if you wish. They point to the fact that he is, in fact, God. But secondly, they also tell us that Jesus is human. That a human being, he as a human being, he performed miracles in the same way that prophets of the Old Testament did as well. And then thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. We read in various Old Testament prophecies and promises of the things he would do. This is from Isaiah chapter 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And this is just but one of the promises made regarding the Messiah. They are fulfilled in the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Lastly, at the end of the sermon, I mentioned that there are two thoughts about miracles that I think will help guide us through this series. First of all, the primacy and the importance of the word. 
That is to say, people tend to want to see miracles without any theological baggage. You know, just, just heal me, just do whatever it is I want, don't preach to me. And yet what we see in the life of Jesus is that he wants a conversation. Uh, so we read of him healing all day. That's because he was having conversations with a variety of people that he was healing. It isn't simply enough for him to sort of raise his hand and zap you and, and you're healed. There has to be conversation. There has to be a relationship. Secondly, the miracles validate his words. So he doesn't just speak. He speaks and then he does a miracle, which in fact validates what he's been talking about with these various individuals. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? Okay, get it. These are his words. What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. So he speaks, he has these words, this doctrine, this theology, but then he speaks and and he casts demons out. What is this teaching? In Hebrews 2, as it looks back to the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord, okay, words are used, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, if we want to know about miracles, we need to go back to the miracles of Jesus in the gospel. Where do we start? I would suggest that we start with the very first miracle. And that is what is found in our text today. And John makes a a very specific point that this is the first miracle that Jesus did. Um, Look, if you would, beginning in verse number one, we'll read through verse number 11. John chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Just some basic background about the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 is an introduction to who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And then we have John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God. From chapter 2 to chapter 12, we have what some have called the book of signs. The miracles that Jesus did as recorded in the Gospel of John. They're not all there. There's some afterwards. But this is where the majority of them were found. What we find here is that Jesus reveals his glory. In chapters 13 to 21, to the end of the book, it's called the book of glory because here Jesus receives glory from his father. But he goes through his, uh, he is betrayed. He is put on trial. He is scourged. He is crucified. He dies but then he is raised from the dead. 
The book of signs, where we are in chapter 2, actually is broken up into different sections. And the first section is chapters 2, 3, and 4. And it opens with this first miracle at Cana of Galilee. It closes at the end of chapter 4 with another miracle, his second miracle, this also in Cana of Galilee. So if you want to look there in chapter 4, beginning at verse number 46. And you'll notice that the first miracle is mentioned. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that that was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Both events are referred to as signs. Let's look at the one in chapter 2, the turning of water into wine. It is a familiar story, I think, to most Christians, um, but it presents problems for various Christians. Um, For some who are sort of still stuck in the 19th century, they have problems just with the whole business of miracles. So they're not quite sure that this is something that's possible. More people, I think, have a problem. The second problem being that Jesus had anything to do with wine. And then the third is the exchange between Mary, where Mary is seemingly telling him what to do, and Jesus basically says, back off, woman. It's not my time. And this is the woman who gave him life. This is his mother, um, someone that we hold with reverence. And for him to speak to her in that way, I think, is, is difficult oftentimes for us to comprehend. Three factors should help us understand this passage. First of all, it is the first of the signs that John records. And Jesus, or John tells us at the end of his gospel that he recorded these things so that people might believe. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We should look at this passage and see how it is food for our faith in Jesus. How it is, in fact, something that increases our faith in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, while there is much to learn from this passage, we need to acknowledge that it really happened. Okay, this isn't sort of a a fable, a a morality story that somehow imparts some particular truth. This actually happened. We shouldn't feel like we have to choose, okay, is this really history or is this really telling us how to be good people? Um, This really happened and it has many things to tell us. The third thing is, the background to the story is the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, this sounds like, it comes across as a a, a wonderful thing. Isn't this amazing that Jesus could turn water into wine? Uh, Comedians have made many jokes about this. Um, But if you don't know the Old Testament, that the importance and the meaning of this miracle, I think, will be lost to you. The story is straightforward. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. His mother happens to be there. 
they run out of wine because wedding feast in the Jewish tradition usually lasted more than one day, more than several days. And in this particular thing, a wedding, maybe there were more guests than they expected, but they ran out of wine. Mary asks Jesus to do something and he tells her not to involve him. And then he turns water into wine. This happens in Cana, which is the hometown of Nathaniel, who is mentioned in chapter 1, um, who makes the confession, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. The timing of this, and this you could put parenthesis if you're taking notes, parenthetical. Um, it's one of the few times in which we're sort of given a chronology of you know first day, second day. But if you look at chapter 1, on the first day, we have a delegation from Jerusalem approaching John the Baptist, asking who he is. On the second day, Jesus appears and he announces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the third day, two of John's disciples follow Jesus to find out where it is that he is staying. And on the fourth day, Nathaniel, who is from Cana of Galilee, meets Jesus. Three days later is this wedding in Cana of Galilee, meaning it's the seventh day. Um, you're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you look at the order of creation, we have six days of creation. The seventh day is the day of rest. This is when God brings us into his rest. And this is, I think, symbolized here by this wedding, by this miraculous turning of water into wine. The occasion is a wedding, and much has been made of this. I went back and looked through my notes of uh, the weddings that I've performed here and this is usually mentioned at the beginning that Jesus uh, honored uh, marriage by performing his first miracle at, this, at a wedding. This is a significant fact and it shouldn't be overlooked. Um, Jesus did in fact perform other miracles at other times and other places. Um, he also did them on the Sabbath. Uh, so the timing of it is important um, but the occasion here is truly important. It is a wedding. A man and a woman are coming together as husband and wife. If you look at the other miracles, I think any of us could say, oh, that miracle symbolizes this. So when Jesus heals a blind man, we can say, well, we were blind in our sins and Jesus opened our eyes to see the truth. Or when he heals the lame who could not walk, those who are paralyzed, we could say, apart from Jesus, we were without power. We couldn't, we couldn't see the truth. We couldn't do anything. And Jesus healed us and now we can't. So there is this act of redemption. The question is, where is that here in this, this wedding, this wedding miracle? Where is the redemption? Well, we'll get to this at the end, but I think without question, the idea that marriage is something that God instituted, that in fact had devolved and degenerated into a power situation, is now being redeemed by this particular miracle. Here's the problem in this wedding. They've run out of wine. Okay, Jesus and his uh, mother, his disciples have been invited and to run out of wine would have been a great embarrassment. And so, again, some people who sort of frown on this miracle would say, well, Jesus is just saving the bridegroom from great embarrassment in his community that somehow he had run out of wine. Um, no, there's, there's much more to it than that. 
The miracle is described in verses 6, 7, and 8. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them with, to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out, some out and take it to the master of the banquet. It is in this time that Jesus turns the water into wine. Specifically, 150 gallons of water are turned into 150 gallons of wine. I am no expert on wine, but that does seem like a lot of wine. Um, I looked it up on the internet. The standard bottle of wine holds about one-fifth of a gallon. So this is 750 bottles of wine. Um, It's a lot of wine. The one issue, though, that comes up often is that Jesus had anything to do with wine. Ken Myers in the Mars Hill Audio Journal in issue 117, we have it upstairs if you want to take it home and listen to it, Um, he notes in his introduction to a particular interview that the preoccupations, the presuppositions, and the passions of the surrounding culture oftentimes affect the church more than we realize, sometimes in surprising and disturbing ways. In fact, one could argue that our theology, our liturgy, the way we live our lives has been affected by the surrounding culture, all the way from philosophy to dietary practices. And one of those areas is wine or alcohol. In a book entitled The Poison Chalice, subtitled uh, Eucharistic Grape Juice and Common Sense Realism in Victorian Methodism, Jennifer L. Rudruff Tate explains how the church in the 19th century, and she deals specifically with the Methodists, that's her background, made a major shift away from wine in the Lord's Supper to grape juice. This was a major shift theologically, but also in terms of practice. This was the result of what was known as common sense realism. That is to say, you know what you know based on your senses. And just common sense, what you can see, what you can taste, what you can touch, all these various things. So you take this data in, and then you make sound moral judgments on this, based on these observations. Well, in the 19th century, some scientists came to the conclusion that alcohol was poison. That, in fact, your senses would be impaired if you drank any alcohol. In fact, some would go so far to say if you had one drop of alcohol, you're you're screwed. You, You just will not be able to see things. You will not be able to perceive things as you should. And you will make wrong moral judgments. And the church said, well, I guess that means no more wine for us. Because that's what science has said. The scientists have said it's not good for it. It will impair your judgment, your moral reasoning, so no more. Well, if wine is poison, then you're going to have to read the Bible in an entirely different way. Granted, there are passages in the Bible that speak against overindulging in wine. And so what theologians did in their infinite wisdom was they said, well, Certain words mean bad wine and certain words mean good wine. But it's not really wine, you know, it's, it's just like grape juice. Um, but they weren't consistent because some, sometimes where the bad word showed up was a good place and, and vice versa. 
when they were questioned about this, why has the church not known for 1800 years that wine is bad? They'd say, well, for 1800 years, the church hasn't known that slavery was bad. And now we know that slavery is bad. So in the same way, we know that wine is bad. then what do you do with this miracle? This is the first miracle, and I will argue that for this series, this is ground zero. This is where we start. If we don't understand that miracles have meaning based on this first miracle, then, then I think we're going to have to change our view of miracles entirely. By the way, there were some scientists who said, no, we don't agree that alcohol is poison. And those who opposed them said, yeah, that's because you drink. <laughs> You know, you've had at least one drop of alcohol, therefore your perception is completely skewed. Uh, you don't see things the way we do. And the church just very happily sort of trotted along behind these scientists and said, okay, uh, no more wine for us. I don't think there's any way you can read our text today and get away, get around the fact that it was in fact wine, alcoholic wine. Okay, not just grape juice. Um, If you look at verses 9 and 10, uh, they, the servants, did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best to last. We're talking about wine here, okay? Let's not try to get around. And I say this, I say this with great care. Someone very dear to me um, wept in talking to me about this passage. And she said to me, I cannot believe that my Savior would turn something into something that could cause someone to get drunk. I cannot believe that Jesus would turn water into wine and if people drank enough of it, they would get drunk. And for her, it was a great stumbling block. Well, first of all, getting drunk is not necessarily the end goal of drinking wine. Okay, That may happen, but that's not necessarily what you're shooting for. Um, Jesus, in fact, did turn this water into wine and not simply wine, but good wine. One would even say great wine. If we, because of cultural influences, deny that Jesus turned water into wine, then we discount, we dismiss this miracle, the first miraculous sign. And we call into question all his miracles. But Do you think it was by chance that this was his first miracle? Do you think he had other miracles lined up, but then he got invited to this wedding, and so then he, he ended up doing this? No, this, this was deliberately the first miracle that he performed. You'll notice that there were six stone jars that held water that the Jews used for ritual purification, for ceremonial washing. Uh, this was part of the Old Testament law, uh, how that people would cleanse themselves in certain situations. And I think here we have a symbolic purification that that which is Old Testament, six stone jars of water, now is turned into wine, that which is a sign of the Messianic Kingdom. 
So it is, in fact, in this wedding that we see the transition from Old Testament, the water, to the New Testament, that is wine. How does this happen? It is through the Messiah. And if you look at verse number 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. How do we know that he is the Messiah, the fulfilling of Old Testament promises? Well, listen to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. See, I see this first miracle as the fulfilling of that promise that we hear from Isaiah back in Isaiah 25. By the way, I think we find not only the quantity, 150 gallons of wine, but also the quality, that it is the best wine uh, as being particularly significant. Some might say, I think you're reaching, Damon. I, I really don't think that what, that's what it's about. Well, listen to what comes after verse number 6 in Isaiah 25. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I don't think I'm reaching at all. This is, in fact, the beginning of the fulfilling of the Messianic promises and the salvation that God is bringing to his people. And it begins at a wedding. And here we see the redemption of marriage, the reclaiming of that which God instituted back in the garden. And remember, creation, fall, redemption. Well, in the fall, marriage had become something quite distorted, in which uh, it's more of a power situation. The man is over the woman or women if he has more than one wife. And here, uh, and Jesus is questioned about it time and time again about marriage. And he's like, you know, back in the beginning, this is what God intended. And now at this wedding, we see marriage being redeemed. It's a, it's a oneness of partnership, one flesh, one mind, one soul, and not simply a power arrangement. It also points, though, to the future. Because our marriages here are symbolic of something that will happen at the end of time when Jesus is united with his people in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is from Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters, and the loud, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and clean was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Weddings, by their very nature, tend to be very happy events. The wedding in Cana, without most people realizing it, was even more so. 
because it was the occasion of the first miracle, first of many that Jesus the Messiah would perform. It was the beginning of the proclaiming in action by miracles of the kingdom of God. And it pointed ahead to the great event when Jesus and his people will be joined. As I said, the issue that we need to consider when we think of miracles is what does a miracle mean? What does a particular miracle mean? We've started with the first miracle that Jesus performed because I think this sort of is a template. This, this sort of should instruct us. This is what miracles are all about. It isn't simply sort of a waving a wand and wonderful things happen. It has significance. It points to something. It has a meaning. It has a meaning beyond itself. I doubt that most people on that day, if any of them realized what was going on, The servants knew that Jesus had turned water into wine. I don't think they knew what it meant. I'm not sure that the disciples did, but they put their faith in him. And as time went on, they came to understand, this is what that's about. That Jesus is the fulfilling of the messianic promises. And we are, in a sense, leaving the old covenant behind and the new covenant. They won't hear about this until the Last Supper. But it all starts here with this first miracle. And for us, as we begin the series, this is where we start. This first miracle that Jesus performed. Let's pray together. Our Father, more than we realize, we are affected by what surrounds us. In some ways, we just sort of shake our heads when we think of our brothers and sisters in the 19th century who followed what was considered scientific truth and in a, in a real way turned away from the miraculous, that which Jesus did in his first miracle. I wonder if future generations will look back at us and shake their heads how we have been so affected by the surrounding culture. We live in a time when people are more open to miracles, but they don't necessarily want to know what they mean. They want the gift without the giver. I thank you for this first miracle that Jesus did. Unusual by any standard, No one was healed or raised from the dead or a demon cast out. Rather, it was for simple pleasure and joy at a wedding that Jesus turned water into wine. But in doing so, he signified that he was the Messiah, the fulfiller of the promises, and pointed ahead to the great supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are more modern and scientific in our thinking, I suspect, than we are biblical. May we, as we go through this series, come to see the truth of who Jesus is in a deeper way and the reality of the miracles that he performed and what they meant. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We pray for our brother Dan, as he's there, his bed, even as he listens to us, that he to the sermon he would know that we are holding him up in prayer and that you're standing right there with him 
We thank you for the rain. We're supposed to get some more. Thank you for your wonderful gift and your love. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.